petition in the Lord's model prayer. Thy kingdom come. And we've discussed how that kingdom comes today, comes by conversion. You have to be put into that kingdom. It comes by commitment. Believers today responding to Christ's rule in their lives and living out then the character of the kingdom and that is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I want to get right to it. Thy kingdom come. We want to talk about, talk about how the kingdom comes in the future. Because What we're experiencing today in the kingdom of God is the unseen spiritual aspect of the kingdom. Jesus said to the Pharisees, the, the kingdom of God is not coming with with uh, flash and, and uh, you know, parades and things like that. It's going to come unobserved. In fact, it's already in your midst. What he's talking about is that spiritual aspect of the kingdom of God whereby people are born again, born from above, into that kingdom. But there's coming a day, praise God, when the kingdom will come in all of its fullness, all of its glory, at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So how will the kingdom come in the future? This word come in Matthew chapter 6, thy kingdom come, is an aorist active imperative, which indicates, keep this in mind as we go to Daniel chapter 2, it indicates a sudden instantaneous coming of God's kingdom. So let's go to Daniel chapter 2. And what you'll see in Daniel chapter 2 is Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has a dream. When he wakes up in the morning, he forgot the dream. But he knows that he was tossing and turning. He was disturbed. He was distressed. And so he goes to talk to the, um, the wise men, the astrologers, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans. And he asks them for two things. I want you to tell me what the dream is, and then I want you to give me the interpretation. And of course, they're not able to do that, and they basically argue with the king, Nebuchadnezzar, Verse 10, there's not a man upon the earth that can reveal the king's matter. Therefore, there is no king, there's no lord, there's no ruler that has asked such things of any magician or astrologer or Chaldean. Nebuchadnezzar says, look, if you don't tell me the dream and you don't give me the interpretation, you're going to die. So in verse 12, after they argue this is a rare thing, nobody's ever done something like this, nobody can tell you what the dream is, nobody can give you the interpretation. The king was angry, furious, verse 12, and he commanded to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Now who was part of that group of wise men? Daniel and his three friends. Of course, they start gathering people together and Verse 14, Daniel answered, 
with counsel and wisdom to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who has gone forth to slay the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king, king's captain, why is the decree so hasty from the king? Then Arioch made the thing known to Daniel. Then Daniel went in, desired of the king. He went to King Nebuchadnezzar that he would give him time and that he would show the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house. He made the thing known to his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. Verse 18, that they would desire mercies of the God of heaven concerning this secret that Daniel and his fellows should not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now, folks, keep in mind, Daniel has now gone to his three friends, and they are going to ask God to do something that's never been done before. For God to reveal to Daniel the thoughts and dreams that Nebuchadnezzar had on his bed. I don't know if I've got that kind of faith. I know God can do it. But Daniel basically goes to his three friends and he says, look, our life depends upon God answering this prayer. Verse 19. Then was the secret revealed unto Daniel in a night vision. Folks, don't miss what God just did between verses 18 and 19. Don't miss that. The faith that Daniel and his three friends had for God to give them something that they could not possibly know unless God gave it to them. No wonder Daniel blesses the God of heaven in verse 19. Now, I wasn't going to do this, but I've got to read this prayer. Verse 20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his, and he changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to those who know understanding. He revealeth the deep and secret things. He knoweth what is in the darkness, and the light dwelleth with him. I thank thee and praise thee, O thou God of my fathers, who has given me wisdom and might, and has made known unto me now what we desired of thee, for thou, uh, for thou hast uh, now made known unto us the king's matter. So then Daniel goes in with Arioch to the king. Don't destroy the wise men. I like what Arioch says here, I have found a man. <laughs> kind of taking credit to himself there. Daniel says in verse 27, in the presence of the king, the secret which the king hath demanded, cannot the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the soothsayers, reveal unto the king. But there is, there is a God in heaven who revealeth secrets and maketh known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what shall be in the latter days. Thy dream and the visions of thy head upon thy bed are these. As for thee, O king, thy thoughts came into thy mind upon thy bed. What should come to pass hereafter? And he who revealeth secrets maketh known to thee what shall come to pass. But as for me, 
This secret is not revealed to me for any wisdom that I have more than any living, but for their sakes that shall make known the interpretation to the king, and thou mightest know the thoughts of thy heart. Now, folks, this passage of Scripture in Daniel chapter 2 is a very pivotal passage of Scripture in God revealing what's going to take place in human, for us, history. To them, it was all future. And what's going to be revealed is the future of Gentile world powers. Daniel says, Thou, O king, saw us, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose brightness was excellent, stood before thee, and the form of it was terrible. The image's head was of fine gold. Its breast and its arms were of silver. Its belly and its thighs were of bronze or brass. Its legs were of iron, and its feet part of iron and part of clay. Thou sawest until a stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon its feet that were of iron and clay, and broke them to pieces. Then were the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold broken to pieces together and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them, and the stone that smote the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now this was Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Great big image standing there in his dream, head of gold, uh, chest and arms of silver, uh, belly and the thighs of brass, legs of iron, uh, the feet part of iron and part of clay, the toes included in that. And Nebuchadnezzar was watching in his dream, considering this image a great stone cut out without any hands. Smote this image, not on its head, on its feet. And as it smote the image, the whole image was turned to dust, as it were, and completely obliterated. Verse 36. This is the dream, and we will tell its interpretation before the king. Thou, O king, art a king of kings, for the God of heaven hath given thee a kingdom, power, and strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the fowls of the heavens, hath he given into thine hand, and hath made thee ruler over them all. Thou art this head of gold. So Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom he represented, Babylon, was the head of gold. After thee, verse 39, shall arise another kingdom, inferior to thee, and another third kingdom of bronze, which shall bear rule over all the earth. Now these kingdoms that are shown forth, and then verse 40, and the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron. These kingdoms are Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece under Alexander, and then Rome. Four kingdoms, Gentile world powers, which will rule over the whole earth. The fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron, for as much as iron breaketh in pieces, 
and subdueth all things, and as iron that breaketh all these shall it break in pieces and bruise. Whereas thou sawest the feet and the toes, part of potter's clay and part of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, but there shall be in it of the strength of iron, for as much as thou sawest the iron mixed with miry clay. And as the toes of the feet were part of iron and part of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly broken. And whereas thou sawest iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men, but they shall not adhere one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. Verse 44. And in the days of these kings, what kings? The ten kings which the toes represent. In the days of those ten kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. That has never happened yet. It will. For as much as thou sawest that the stone was cut out of mountain without hands, that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great king, the great God, hath made known to the king what shall come to pass hereafter. What shall come to pass hereafter, and the dream is certain, and the interpretation of it sure. I've taken some time to go through Daniel chapter 2, because when we pray... This petition in the model prayer that Jesus is giving us, thy kingdom come, we're asking for this to happen. For this to take place. For Christ to return and to set up his kingdom. That's what we're asking. When will it happen? Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. Now, just before we, I read a verse here in Revelation chapter 11, let me point out something that is fairly obvious, that sometimes people who want to dismiss the idea of Christ setting up his kingdom is simply this. Babylon was a literal kingdom that filled the earth. Medo-Persia was a literal kingdom that ruled over the earth. Greece was a literal kingdom that ruled over the earth. Rome was a literal kingdom that ruled over the earth. And one day there's going to be ten kings who will give their power to the beast or the Antichrist, and that will be a literal kingdom that rules over the whole earth. So the stone that smites this image on its feet and destroys these kingdoms, obliterates the idea, the memory, and everything from the Gentile world powers, from Babylon to Rome to the coming kings in the book of Revelation, just as they were a literal kingdom. So the kingdom of Christ will be a literal kingdom. Romans chapter, or not Romans, Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world is become the kingdom of our Lord 
and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, without getting into the chronology of the book of Revelation, and there are people who have spent years studying this, the seventh trumpet is what is called one of the woe trumpets. There are three trumpets, five, six, and seven, and they're called woe trumpets. The angel actually says, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth for the three angels which are yet to sound. And the reason they're called woe trumpets is because when the trumpet is blown in heaven, time elapses on the earth. The first trumpet, the fifth trumpet, I should say, when it is blown, five months will elapse on the earth. That's the locusts that come out of the bottomless pit, and they're given power over men for five months to hurt them, to sting them, to cause them great pain and suffering. The sixth trumpet, when it is blown, three and a half years will elapse on the earth. And I believe part of the sixth trumpet are the two witnesses. When the seventh trumpet is blown, three and a half years will also elapse on the earth. In fact, the seventh trumpet will actually end the tribulation period. Now, the chronology is tough to put together. Let me explain it this way. The seven seals tell us what is going to happen. John goes back and prophesies again, and the trumpets give us more details underneath those seven seals. And then the seven bold judgment gives us a lot greater detail of how some of these things are going to take place. In the seventh trumpet, at the end of the tribulation period, the seventh angel sounds, and there are voices in heaven saying that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. In chapter 12, near the end of the tribulation period, probably about midway through. There's war in heaven in verse 7. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, who deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Verse 10, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now, is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for, his, for the accuser or a brother and is cast down who accused them before our God day and night. Now there's a lot going on in the book of Revelation. And near the end of the book of Revelation, the last three and a half years of that seven-year period called the time of Jacob's trouble, the Antichrist will arise, the temple in Jerusalem will have been built, this Antichrist and the false prophet with him, the religious leader of the day, he will set up 
The Antichrist will set himself up in the temple of God as though he is God. He will persecute Israel. He will persecute Christians. The armies from the north will come. The armies from the east will come. The armies from the south will come. You're familiar with the Battle of Armageddon. Some of the things that I have read about the Battle of Armageddon are intense. Turn to chapter 17, if you would, verses 12 through 18. A sixth angel poured out, or chapter 17, verses 12 through 18. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings. That relates back to the ten toes in Daniel chapter 2. The ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings who've received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind, shall give their power and strength unto the beast. Verse 14, these shall make war with the lamb. The lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. He saith unto me, the waters which thou sawest where the harlot sitteth, the people are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which thou sawest, those ten kings, upon the beast shall hate the harlot, shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. The woman whom thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Then go back to chapter 16, verse 19. The great city was divided into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. Great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Babylon will be remembered. God is going to destroy all the kingdoms of the world. Look at chapter 19 and verse 6. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and like the voice of many waters, like the voice of many peals of thunder, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent, what? Reigneth. His kingdom has come. Look at verses 11 through 16. This is where the king comes. And I saw heaven opened. We've never seen that happen before. The heavens will depart as a scroll. I think Matthew says that. And behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies that were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And if you're saved today, and you die before this happens, you'll be there. Following Christ on white horses. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations and shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth out the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. 
and he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And folks, Revelation 19, 11 through 16 is the fulfillment of Daniel chapter 2 where the rock cut out without stand, or the stone cut out without hands strikes that image of Gentile world powers and is obliterated and destroyed. Chapter 20 and verse 14. Verse 4, chapter 20, verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, for the word of God, and who had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. And during that thousand years, Satan is bound and cast into the the bottomless pit and the earth will be renewed and will go into a thousand years of Christ ruling on this earth. That'll be an amazing time. Let me reiterate, just like every one of those world Gentile powers were literal kingdoms. So will Christ's kingdom be a literal kingdom. So when we pray, thy kingdom come, we're praying for this to happen. And it will be a sudden inexplainable unstoppable event when Christ will return. When Christ returns this second time, he will not be offering salvation. He will be smiting the nations destroying the wicked. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, it's appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. Unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Basically what that's saying, when Christ returns, He's not coming to die for sin. He's not coming to offer salvation. He's coming to, to rule as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The time of turning to him as your Lord and Savior will be done. Over. No second chance. Turn, if you would, to 2 Thessalonians. Always dislike reading this passage of Scripture. But I would be remiss not to. I have to. 
2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of the Lord is, is present. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come the falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. So we're talking about the Antichrist, called the beast, the book of Revelation. And he's going to oppose and exalt himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And now ye know what restraineth, or what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. Basically, there are many commentators who believe verse 6 is talking about the Holy Spirit. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now hindereth will continue to hinder until he be taken out of the way. And that's what I want to point out. There's coming a day when the Holy Spirit will be taken out of the way. And it'll be near the time of the end. Whether it's before the tribulation period or during the tribulation period, the Holy Spirit will be taken out of the way. Will no longer withhold evil and wickedness in this world. No longer withhold uh, this man of sin from coming into power. And then shall that wicked one be revealed. So this wicked one will not be revealed who's going to actually head up this last world empire whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. We just read that in Revelation 19. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, without all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Now let me reread that verse. Pay attention to what it's saying. Once the Holy Spirit is taken out of the way, and God is opening up the way for these end-time events to take place, this man of sin, the beast, the Antichrist, and the false prophet with him are going to deceive people. And the people that they're going to deceive are the ones who received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause, one of the sad, to me, one of the saddest verses of the Bible, for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all might be judged who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. See if I can explain this. When Christ returns for the second time, it will not be to offer anyone salvation. When he returns the second time of king as, as king of kings and lord of lords, prior to that time, the Holy Spirit will have been taken away. The Holy Spirit that convicts men of of, of of uh, sin and righteousness and judgment. And when the Holy Spirit 
is taken out of the way, God will send a strong delusion to those who had heard the gospel before, to those who failed to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, 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 the gospel of the kingdom of God. And God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie. Whatever lie the Antichrist is going to tell, whatever lie that will keep them from turning to God, they're going to believe it because God will send them a strong delusion. It's like in the days of Noah. When Noah was building the ark, he preached for 120 years. And he built that ark, warning of God's judgment to come. And the day that Noah entered into that ark and shut the door, the time of salvation was past. And I can imagine when the rain started, the water began to rise. There were many knocks on that door. Many people wanted to get into that ark. But it was too late. And what I'm trying to say to you today is this. Behold, now is the time of salvation. Today is the day to be saved. We don't know when God's going to take his spirit from this world. We don't know when he's no longer going to strive with people to turn to Christ and enter the kingdom of God. We don't know when that time will be. Now is the accepted time. Today is the day of salvation. Because when Christ returns on that white horse to destroy the Gentile world powers, the time for salvation is past. You will either accept Christ as your Savior and Lord today, or you will face him as your judge in that day. God's kingdom is coming. And when Christ returns, there will be a thousand years of righteousness in this world, on this earth, as Christ lives and reigns, and those who have been saved and served him will live and reign with him. And at the end of that earthly kingdom of God, of which Christ is the king. Satan will be let out of his prison. He will go out and deceive the nations again. And there will be another final rebellion. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camps of the saints round about the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever. When that millennial kingdom is done, Jesus Christ will sit on a throne 
It's called the great white throne. I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. The, 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 the earth will be burned up. We see in verse 21, a new heaven and a new earth. But I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things were, which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead that were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. And death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death. And so whosoever is not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15 before I move on. 1 Corinthians 15. It's the great resurrection chapter, verse 20. Now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but every man in his own order. Christ the first fruits, afterwards they that are Christ's at his coming. Verse 24 Then cometh the end, when he shall, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. When he, shall, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign, it's talking about Christ, till he hath put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death, and there will be people dying in the millennial kingdom. For he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is expected who did put all things under him. What does that mean? It just means that Christ is seated on a throne now, but not all enemies have been subdued yet, but it is expected that it's going to happen. And then when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also be subject unto him that, that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So let me, as a preacher, give this warning. And it's simply this. Don't put off salvation. Don't put off turning to Christ as Savior and Lord. Enter the kingdom of God now, because if you do not enter the kingdom of God now, you will not be part of it then when he returns. I don't know when the day will be. Jesus gave a parable about you know, the ten young virgins being invited to a wedding. Five were wise and five were foolish. You remember that story. And the five took oil in their lamps and took extra oil with them while the bridegroom tarried. The five foolish ones, their lamps went out. They had no oil to keep their lamps lit. They asked of the wise, give us some oil, and they said, no, not so. And the five wise went into the marriage feast. 
five foolish went to the store or wherever they could get oil and came and knocked at the door. It was too late. It was too late. Folks, your life is like a vapor. It appeareth for a little while and then vanisheth away. We don't know the day of our death. We don't know what's going to happen the next 10 minutes. More than likely, a preacher will keep rambling on. That we can guarantee. But you do not know what's going to happen when you walk out this door, when you drive home, when your heart will give out, when you'll hear that dreaded word, cancer. You do not know. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. And as we look at the evil and the wickedness in this world, in our own country, we are realizing that the day of Christ's return is drawing oh so close. And I don't know when God's going to take his spirit and say, that's enough. Because I know this, when that spirit is taken out of the way, this world is going to get really evil. And Christians will be persecuted. And then we'll go into the tribulation period, and it's going to be too late. When we pray, thy kingdom come, we are praying for Christ to return. But as we're praying it, we're also realizing that the fate, eternal destiny of many people will be sealed forever. Is that not a sobering thought? so I plead with you, if you do not know Christ, you have not turned to him for the salvation of your soul and the forgiveness of sins, and for him to rule over your life as Lord and Master, that you would turn to him today before it's too late. Or you can go on and enjoy your sin and enjoy life never giving thought again to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you start to see these things happen as the Bible predicted they would happen, you will not be able to turn to Christ. The door will be shut. Time will be over for salvation because Christ will be revealed as King of kings and Lord of lords. The exciting part of all this is the kingdom comes by consummation, the coming of that millennial kingdom when Christ returns. It will be God's kingdom in this earth, but it will be a kingdom that is not of this world. It will have obliterated any memory of all Gentile world, prob, uh, world powers. All evil will be done away. Christ will rule with a rod of iron, and people will be submitting to God's sovereignty every day. 
Let me close with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you'll recognize verse 13 as I begin to read it. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who are asleep, those who are dead, that you sorrow not, even as others who have no hope. For if, or since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also who sleep or have died in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not precede them who are asleep, those who have died. For the Lord himself, Jesus Christ, shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And I want you to underline in verse 17 that word meet. It's an interesting word. It says, we will meet the Lord in the air. The Greek word that is used for meet was a word that was used to portray citizens of a city leaving the city to go outside the city to greet visiting royalty or a, or a conquering general or a returning king. And when Christ returns at the end of the tribulation period, that's what's going to happen. We who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord, we're going to go up to the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And we're going to return with him to the earth. That's what this Greek word means. Folks, if we are praying this, it'll change us today. We'll be looking for the Lord to return. We'll be praying for the Lord to return. We'll be pleading with people to enter the kingdom of God and respond to Jesus Christ today. This petition will change us. So how can one really and sincerely pray this? Number one, change your citizenship by conversion. Change your citizenship by turning to Jesus Christ. We are not citizens of this world. Our citizenship is where? In heaven, where we look for the Lord to return. So change your citizenship by conversion. And how do you live out that citizenship? By commitment to Christ's rule in your life. And when will that commitment, what will that commitment lead to? The character of the kingdom of God. Righteousness, peace, and as we saw in Sunday school, the joy of the Holy Spirit produced in our lives. And when will that citizenship be fully realized? When Christ returns. Wow, I got through half a page in my notes. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. And we do pray that your kingdom would come. Oh God, change us. Change us so that we're more like Christ. 
Oh God, if there's somebody here without Christ, would you draw them to yourself so that they too would be part of the kingdom of God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.